0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم We now approach the turning point in the religion of Islam which is the migration of the Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وآله, from Mecca to Medina A number of important events happened right before the migration. We will examine those important incidents or events. Mecca was no longer suitable for the Prophet and the Muslims to stay in. There was no hope that any of the tribes in Mecca and those surrounding areas would believe in the religion of Islam, would support the Prophet They made it very clear to the Prophet that we will continue fighting you till the last breath. There is no hope in us embracing your message. The Prophet ﷺ also had a universal message. He brought a universal message to guide all of humanity. He brought a message that would deliver freedom to everyone, deliver guidance to everyone. And him staying in Mecca meant that the entire world is missing out on his message. They're denied from receiving his message because the Meccans had a blockade on the Prophet. They did not allow him to freely deliver the religion of Islam. And so the Prophet realized that it's unfair for all those potential Muslims who want to um, receive this guidance for him to stay in a land like Mecca, not having the freedom to deliver to them the message of God. In addition to that, the Muslims in Mecca, they couldn't take it anymore. We're now talking about 13 years of constant persecution, torture, embargoes, sanctions, psychological warfare, physical torture. They couldn't take it anymore. And the Prophet realized that if he stays any longer in Mecca, even those couple of hundred Muslims who had embraced Islam, even those would eventually give up. They couldn't take it anymore. 13 years is a long time to be persecuted. So the Prophet sallallahu realized that Mecca, even though it was home, is his hometown, even though he grew up there, he was born there, even though it housed the Kaaba, the house of God, but he realized it's no longer appropriate to stay in Mecca and that they would have to migrate. They would have to leave the city. So the Prophet ﷺ decides to migrate to the city of Medina, which was called Yathrib at the time. Now why Medina? Out of all places on earth, why Medina? First of all, the Prophet wanted a place that was geographically close to Mecca. You don't want a very far place. You could easily migrate to. It's close to Mecca, so you know what's going on in Mecca. It was very important for the Muslims to know what's going on in Mecca, what are the pagans up to? Mecca was the stronghold of the pagans because pilgrims would go there, so it was very important for Muslims to stay somewhere close because if Quraysh maintained that stronghold and they're free to do whatever they want, they will stop people from embracing the religion of Islam. So, the Prophet wanted a place that's kind of far, it's like 400 kilometers to the north, but it's not too far. So, we can keep an eye on what the pagans are doing, what they're up to, what their next scheme is. So, he needed a a city that wasn't too far from Mecca. So, that was one factor that made the Prophet choose Medina or made Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose Medina for him. Number two, being in Medina allowed the Muslims to exercise pressure on the Meccans. Why? Because remember the Meccans in their business and trade, what route would they take? They would go to Syria, Syria's to the north, so their caravans would pass by Medina. Now during those 13 years, Quraysh were free to persecute Muslims. Who's going to punish them? Who's going to hold them accountable? No one. Muslims were weak, they couldn't hold them accountable but now that the Muslims are in Medina, they have leverage over the Meccans how if you continue fighting us, we'll cut off your path of the caravans, we won't let you go to Syria, we won't let your caravans go back and this was a very big threat to their economy. So this actually made Meccans take Muslims seriously, stop your aggression. In Mecca, there were no consequences for the pagans. Do whatever you want to the Muslims. Who's going to stop you? Nobody. But now that the Muslims were in a place like Medina, which is in the direct path of their caravans, now they had to think twice. Don't think you could persecute the Prophet and Muslims whenever you want. No, there are consequences. There's retaliation. They're going to stop your caravans. So this was another factor why the Prophet ﷺ chose the city of Medina. The third factor, the people of Medina, out of all people in the Arabian Peninsula, they signaled to the Prophet that will embrace you. Many of them became Muslim. They were open to the message of the Prophet. So it made sense for him to go to a place like Medina. Other tribes were hostile. We talked about Ta'if, if you remember, the people of Ta'if were hostile. They didn't welcome the Prophet. In fact, they chased him and stoned him. The only people who really, Embrace the Prophet were the people of Medina. So it made sense for the Prophet to consider Medina as the point of migration. And finally, the fourth factor, there was relative freedom in Medina. You didn't have a government that would persecute you. It was a free society, relatively speaking, and the Prophet did find that freedom to preach Islam. Had he gone to the Roman Empire, there's a strong Roman ruler. It's not going to let you preach another religion. Had he gone to the Persian Empire, same thing. You have a strong Persian government or ruler. There is no freedom there. So really Medina was the best option. It was a viable option to go for migration. So the Prophet ﷺ, he communicates to the Muslims to start going. To the city of Medina. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands them in the Quran to start the hijra, which literally means the migration. In Islamic law, hijra sometimes becomes wajib. Migration becomes necessary. When your religion is threatened, you can no longer practice your beliefs, your honor and dignity is violated. Islam tells you migrate. In fact there is a verse in the Holy Qur'an that rebukes and condemns those who don't migrate and they lose their faith as a result of that. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la states in the Holy Qur'an <أَنفُسهم> There are certain people, the angels come to take their soul at the time of death. أَنفُسِهِمْ They're oppressors, unjust. The angels said, "What have you done? Losing your faith, losing your honor, losing your dignity? What have you brought upon yourselves? What's their justification?" "Alu." <inaudible> we were exploited in the land. We were deemed weak, and you see the others, the pagans, they forced us into this. We didn't have the freedom to practice our religion. This is their argument. What do the angels tell them? The angels will tell them, isn't the land of God vast? Couldn't you have migrated? Who forced you to stay here? Who forced you to stay in this city that made you lose your religion? Leave, migrate. So the Holy Qur'an commanded those Muslims that you have to migrate, it's wajib. Yes. So this verse that I recited, I'll give you the reference. Is that in Surah An-Nisa? One second, I'll get you the reference. So that is Surah An-Nisa verse 97. So 4, 97. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the owner of the land. He's the owner of the earth. If one place is impeding you from, from your religious progress, even your economic progress, go somewhere else. Yes, it requires sacrifice. It's not easy but this is part of our test Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us in this life and this is by the way a lesson for us today about migration if anyone lives in an area in an area that is hostile to your religious values to your honor your principles your beliefs and you can no longer practice your faith especially your younger generation find another place you don't have to be, have to be stuck in that place just because you were born there for example Now while in the last century we saw a migration to the West because in many, unfortunately, Muslim societies people were no longer able to practice their religion freely. There was a lot of religious persecution, so Muslims found freedom in Western countries. Unfortunately today we see the opposite happening in some Western countries, without naming any, but some countries that are, for example, imposing a ban on the hijab, right? Um, Now the ban has to start somewhere so initially they start with public places then they you know move on to banning for example the full veil, the uh, burqa or burqa or whatever the niqab and then one day in the next five years in the next ten years they're going to ban hijab altogether. If you live in a society like that where you see you no longer can practice your faith the Quran says migrate don't have to stay there if you can stay there and fight for your rights yes do that but if it reached a point where you can no longer defend your rights and you will lose your next generation migrate this is an Islamic obligation to secure your principles and values and beliefs sometimes you would have to migrate so the religion of Islam teaches us that your religion comes before your land before your culture before your home, before your wealth, before all other interests that you have. This is your primary interest because this is what will determine your fate for eternity on the day of judgment. So don't spoil it, don't squander it. And migration really has many benefits. It gives you not just religious freedom, new opportunities, economic freedom. Look at the immigrants here, the United States is a land of immigrants and if uh, I I remember once I read about uh, a study on the fortune 500 companies 40% of these companies were established by immigrants or the sons of immigrants which tells you that when immigrants come to a new society they really realize their full potential. So migration has many benefits even if you're concerned about your financial economic state if you migrate, especially for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open new paths for you. So yes, it's a sacrifice and you're leaving your old hometown, but remember that Allah subhanahu wa will compensate you. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi he tells the Muslims that we have to now soon migrate. The Prophet does something important before the migration, right before the migration within you know those few days or weeks or maybe the last two to three months before the migration the Prophet ﷺ does something very important and that is the Mu'akhat and the Pact of Brotherhood. We've heard about the Pact of Brotherhood that the Prophet did normally where do we hear about it? In Medina between who? The Muhajireen and the Ansar. The people of the Medina and the Muhajireen those who migrated from Mecca. That was... In reality, the second pact of brotherhood, there was another mu'akhat or pact of brotherhood that the Prophet ﷺ did in Mecca, right before the migration. Now, why did the Prophet do this? This was going to be a very big step. The migration to Habasha was a temporary migration. But this migration is going to be a permanent one. And people will permanently leave their city, leave their belongings, leave their hometown. So it was a very difficult move. So the Prophet ﷺ to make this easy on everyone as many of the would be leaving family and friends behind, he makes a pact of brotherhood between the Muslims in Mecca so that they feel as if they're one family It's like we're one family migrating to Medina. This would give them more courage. It would strengthen their hearts. So right before the migration, the Prophet ﷺ assigns the Muslims as brothers to each other. The pact meant that they will support one another in times of difficulty. And the pact also made them equal to one another. And this was uh, a great achievement that the Prophet made. The Prophet sallallahu chooses those two whom he assigned in the Pact of Brotherhood in Mecca. He chooses two from very different backgrounds often in order to equate between them. For example, the Prophet assigns his uncle Hamza to be the brother of his formerly adopted son Zayd. Zayd was a slave. Having your uncle Hamza very prestigious member of Bani Hashim, being the brother of Hu Zayd, who was a slave. That was a powerful message the Prophet was sending, that you, O Muslims, as you're starting on this migration, realize that you're all brothers, you're all equal. In fact, that brotherhood was so strong and solid, the companions thought they would actually inherit one another they were under the impression that they would inherit one another then later on in Medina Allah reveals a verse that no there is no inheritance except from blood relatives, but that's how strong this pact was. So the Prophet made the brotherhood between the rich and the poor, between the master and the slave and this was just phenomenal. So who did he assign as brothers according to historical accounts? He assigned Abu Bakr to Umar, they were brothers, he assigned Hamza, his uncle, to Zayd ibn Haritha, his formerly adopted son. He assigns Uthman ibn Affan to Abdurrahman ibn Auf. By the way, in choosing these brothers, we'll comment you know, on this later when we, talk to, when we talk about the pact of brotherhood in Medina. The Prophet also sometimes would make brotherhood between two who are like-minded, right? Same type of uh, Endeavor, same type of thinking. He assigns Zubayr, his cousin, to Ibn Mas'ud. He assigns Bilal as the brother of Ubadah ibn al-Harith. So when he assigned them as brothers, only one Muslim man was left who did not have a brother yet, who was he? Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib So then finally Imam, the Prophet designates Imam Ali to be his brother. Then the Prophet asks him, Ama tarda an akuna Look at the wording that the Prophet uses. By the way, this is this comes from Sunni Hadith too. This wording. Are you not satisfied that I am your brother? Now why did the Prophet say that? It seems that when he assigned everyone as brothers except Imam Ali, Imam Ali was put in an awkward situation. Everybody got everybody got a brother except me so the companions are looking maybe the imam you know uh, he he knew what the prophet's plan was but it was an awkward situation so maybe the imam signaled you know what's going on how come i don't have a brother so then the prophet tells him are you not satisfied that i am your brother he said of course ya Rasulullah, i have i'm satisfied then the prophet tells him you are my brother in the world and in the Akhirah. Sallu ala <laughs> Muhammad wa Muhammad. What is our source for this pact of brotherhood and this hadith? Mustadrak al-Hakim, Al-Hakim al-Naysaburi, prominent Sunni scholar, in his book Al-Mustadrak, he mentions this. Seerah al-Halabiyyah, one of the Sunni works on the Seerah of the Prophet mentions this and many other works also mention this. Ibn Sa'ad, in his Tabaqat, for example. Al baladhuri also mentions this. So we have this narrated by many prominent Sunni scholars. Yes, brother. Does this also have to relate to the fact that there like a blood relationship between the two, as in their family before? Or is that something that he did take into? No, the prophets, when assigning these brothers, did not consider any family relationships between them. So they were completely unrelated sometimes. And he would assign them as brothers, yes. He did not consider that as a factor. Maybe some of them were distantly related but that wasn't a factor that the Prophet considered. Having all these sources, yet we have someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, the very extremist Sunni scholar, right, who rejects this incident. He says, no, I don't accept that the Pact of Brotherhood happened in Mecca. Why? What's his argument? He says, well, my argument is that this didn't serve any purpose. Why would the Prophet assign them as brothers? They already knew each other. The Muslims in Mecca, they knew each other. The pact of brotherhood in Medina makes sense because now you have the people of Medina, the Ansar, and you have the people of Mecca, they don't know each other. The Prophet says, I've assigned you as brothers. Help each each other out, get to know one another. But the people in Mecca, they already knew each other. What's the point? And Especially the Prophet and Imam Ali. What does it mean for the Prophet to take Imam Ali as his brother? They knew each other. They grew up with one another. So what purpose did it serve? So he just refutes it. See subhanAllah how they use their opinions to refute historical accounts. Yes. He accepts the Medina one. I think even there he has some uh, issues with some aspects of it. He accepts the Medina one but he refutes this one. But they, they try to refute that. But yes, that one in Medina is well established. The, the phrasing of this one, I think, is what disturbed him. That the Prophet says, Aren't you satisfied that I am your brother? I think they probably have a pr- problem with that phrase. So they try to discredit it. Yes. When did he live? Did he say- about seven centuries ago, oh. roughly. He lived in the Syrian region about seven centuries ago, mm-hmm. during the era of Alam al halli So about 700 years ago. So he tries to refute this, but we mentioned we just mentioned the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ declared them as brothers. This was going to be a huge move, a permanent migration, you need each other's support. Secondly, the Prophet was equating between them, making the master like the slave, the wealthy like the poor. You're now all one family. Let's migrate as one family to Medina in fact it made perfect sense for the Prophet to do that pact of brotherhood and the Prophet sallallahu shows Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib as his brother to make it clear in history so no one has an excuse no companion could say I didn't know it was not clear to me the Prophet made it very clear that only the one who's qualified to be in my status in my position as my successor is Ali ibn Abi Talib he is my brother Be careful what you will do after him. And subhanAllah, even this virtue, they denied him. Even this virtue. After the Prophet when the attack happened and they brought Imam Ali to force, by force to the masjid, and they threatened him, give allegiance. He said, what happens if I don't? That one said to the Imam, we'll kill you. This is in historical accounts. What did Imam Ali tell them? He told told them, if you kill me, then you will have killed the servant of God and the brother of his Prophet. What did he respond to him? He told him, as the servant of God, yes, we'll give that to you. You're the servant of God. But as for the brother of the Prophet, no, you're not. Allahu Akbar. The Prophet two times assigns him as his brother, yet they denied this virtue. They refuted it. They told him, no, you're not the brother of the Prophet. So the Prophet, in in doing this pact of brotherhood and assigning Imam Ali as his brother, is making a powerful statement so no one has any doubts, no excuse, can't falsify the truth. He is the brother of the Prophet So the gradual migration begins Right after the Aqaba Allegiance, if you remember last time we talked about the Aqaba Allegiance, right after the Aqaba Allegiance, three months before the migration, is when the gradual migration begins. The Prophet gave permission to Muslims to start migrating, and they did so gradually. He ordered them to go to Medina, telling them that they have brothers there, they're awaiting them, they have a new home there. He himself was not given my permission to migrate yet, But he tells them slowly start migrating and you see waves of muslim very discreetly uh, in a low profile fashion not to you know uh, instigate the meccans against them they start going to medina so the prophet wasn't the first who migrated to medina he actually had many of his companions go to medina and then he joined them later one of the interesting accounts that we get over here about the migration is the way in which Umar ibn al-Khattab supposedly migrated. So they have a hadith, and interestingly they have attributed this hadith to Imam Ali salam. They have fabricated the hadith on the tongue of Amir al-Mu'mineen to probably give it more credibility, right? To say, see, if Ali ibn Abi Talib says that, you have to accept it. So what have they, what they've claimed, Supposedly Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, says, I did not know any of the migrants of the Muhajireen except that they secretly migrated, except Umar ibn al-Khattab. He was the only one who publicly migrated and this is, I'm, I'm reading now to you the translation of the text of the hadith. When he wanted to migrate, he took out his sword and his arrow And his bow and his his uh, spears. How many things can you carry for God's sake? A sword, a bow, arrows and spears. He he took all of them and he carried them then he went uh, to Masjid al-Haram. It's very interesting you never see any such imagery at Badr, at Uhud, at any of the battles except here. Anyway, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, I'll I'll comment on it in a a couple of minutes. So he supposedly goes to the Kaaba, then he circumambulates around the Kaaba, and Quraysh is watching. He does his tawaf, he does his salah, and then he stands before them and he attacks them verbally. And he tells them, you know, words like, you know, um, may, may God defame you or disgrace you. If you want your mother to grieve over your body and if you want your wife to be widowed then come and stop me from the migration. Come and follow me and you'll see what I'll do to you. So they all chickened out when he said that and he just went and migrated and no one did anything to him. They've mentioned how he was the most courageous one in in his migration we have a number of observations here first of all this is not to be sectarian when we talk about this we're academically discussing this we don't see such bravery from him honestly in Mecca or in Medina during the Prophet's life no such bravery is seen from him which causes to doubt such reports in fact we already talked about his uh, Islam and how he embraced Islam Bukhari narrated that when he became Muslim and the Quraysh found out he was so scared and frightened he actually went into hiding in his house, Bukhari says that and Al As ibn Wa'il had to come and give him refuge and he had to take him under his protection then Umar left his house so if that's how you became Muslim it's kind of doubtful that you would migrate in this fashion Number two at Uhud at Hunayn these important battles, what did he do? He fled, he fled the battle, he did not kill a single person, he did not go into combat with a single person, he fled. Where's this bravery? We're just asking academically, where's this bravery? If you're so brave like that, every Muslim is going discreetly and privately, you're the only one who goes like that in Masjid Al-Haram, like that's their hub headquarters and you do that, where's this bravery in Uhud? Where's this bravery in where? and Hunayn and other areas. In fact, where was this bravery in Mecca itself during the three years the Prophet was in Sha'ib Abi Talib? Persecuted. How come we don't see this bravery, him coming and defending the Prophet? When the Prophet is there and he's about to get ki- killed in war, you're not willing to defend him like that? You want me to believe that he, that's how he migrated? That's not possible. Yes. they during the battle of the fight, the battle of the they were offered multiple opportunities, not just him as I just mentioned these two as an example. Yes, Khandak is another example. When Amr ibn Wood he came he came from the other side and he challenged the Muslims. The Prophet said, Who can get up from amongst you and fight him? And if you die, I guarantee, I guarantee paradise. Can you imagine? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, in front of you and he says, I guarantee paradise for you. None of them stood up except Imam Ali salam. So where is this bravery, really? Now the truth is that we see this bravery actually from Imam Ali alaihissalam. When he migrated, seven pagans followed him, chasing him to try to stop him and harass him. Then we see Imam Ali reacting in this way. So Imam Ali السلام, because he had to stay behind, we'll examine that later, to... You know give back some trust and amanat of the Prophet to bring some woman of the Prophet to Medina so the Imam yes publicly he had to make that migration but we see that bravery from him threatening those who chased him yes brother well the Prophet also saw him as perfect for the job when he went for uh, for Hajj in Hudaybiyah he said you go as my emissary because you have no blood on your sword exactly another indication over here is that at Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet made that treaty with the pagans in order to agree on the treaty initially he sent Umar ibn al-Khattab, he asked him to go and meet the Meccans and work out the treaty, he refused. He refused, he said no you know I'm concerned that the Meccans will uh, they, they have a problem with my tribe now that I've joined you and he refused. The Prophet is dispatching him, he's giving him an assignment and he refused. So where's this bravery, you know, if, if he was really courageous like that? So we have a lot of points that really cause us to doubt that he really actually migrated like that. In any case, the Quraysh, they realize that this migration is a very big threat to their future, so they do try to stop some Muslims, that's why they had to leave discreetly because they did try to stop them uh, from, from migrating. One of those migrants who was initially stopped from migrating was Um Salama. Um Salama, this noble lady, this great and amazing lady whom the Prophet ﷺ later in Medina married her. We'll examine that once we talk about the Prophet's life in Medina. Um Salama, her name was Hind. Her father's name was Abu Umayyah, she came from the tribe of Bani Makhzum. She was born in Mecca, her father was a a distinguished member of Quraysh and he was known for his generosity, he had very good qualities. She is the cousin of Khalid ibn al-Walid and also Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl, the very staunch enemy of the Prophet, she was actually a cousin of him. And she was the sister in nursing of Ammar ibn Yasir. Meaning she was breastfed by the one who breastfed Ammar Ibn Yasir. So she was a very respected and noble lady. She married Abu Salama al-Makhzumi. She was amongst the very early Muslims to uh, embrace the religion of Islam during the first five years of the Ba'tha. And she was amongst the people who migrated to Habasha, if you remember, to Abyssinia and that migration. She was amongst those migrants she migrated with her husband Abu Salama. So they were like the first family to migrate together, the first couple to migrate together to Habasha. And if you remember when we talked about the stories of Habasha, what happened there, what Ja'far ibn Abi Talib said to the king of Habasha, who narrated all these incidents? Umm she She's actually the most important narrator of the events of the, of the Habasha, of the migration to Abyssinia. So she stayed there for a while, and uh, they had their first son in in Habasha. Uh, his name was Salama of course that's how they acquired the name of Abu Salama and Umm Salama, their son Salama was born born in uh, Ethiopia. After some time, after spending a while a few years in Habasha, they come back to Mecca and they go under the protection of Abu Talib, he takes them under his protection, why? because Abu Talib was the uncle of her husband, the khalu, of her, uh, the brother of her husband's mother. So Abu Talib was basically the brother of, of her mother-in-law. So they go in the protection of Abu Talib and that's how they stay a few years in Mecca. Now when the Prophet migrated, Abu Salama Along with his son and Um Salama, they're about to migrate. Her tribe, the tribe of Um Salama come to stop her. They tell Abu Salama, look, you want to migrate? We have no authority over you, migrate. But we will not allow you to take her. She belongs to our tribe, she has to stay here. So they prevent Um Salama from migrating with Abu Salama. So Abu Salama, he sees he has no choice, he leaves her behind because his life was also threatened in in, in Mecca so he leaves with his son and Umm Salama stays behind this deeply disturbs her being separated from her husband, being separated from her son being separated from the Muslims, from the Prophet so what she would do every day, she would go outside she would sit and cry day and night she would just cry she would weep over the separation about a year later Finally some of her relatives who had some mercy in in their hearts they come to the tribal leaders and say look she's just a lady just a woman don't you see she's been crying for an entire year let her go what's the big deal so they soften uh, towards her and they give her the permission to go to uh, Medina a man by the name of Uthman ibn Talha he tells her, I offered to take you to Medina and I'll come back because she didn't have any, anyone to take her. So he takes her to Yathrib and once they are close to the city limits, he, he says, I'm going back to, Me- to Mecca and she goes and she joins her husband uh, Abu Salama and her son. And then later on we'll examine how the Prophet ﷺ married her after her husband was, became a shaheed in one of the battles. We'll examine that in the future insha'Allah. Her husband, before he dies, he makes a prayer. He loved her very deeply and he said, Oh Allah, after I die, send someone to marry my wife who is better than me. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers his prayer and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just send someone who's better than him but the best of his creation, he marries Um Salama. So Um Salama was one of those... Um, one of those uh, migrants or women who did migrate, but it was about a year after that. Next, inshallah, we'll examine how the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam migrated and the assassination plot. There was a very powerful, concise plot to assassinate the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi We'll examine that next time, inshallah.